Christianity is all about relationships. And one of the things that I've reflected on and noticed um, in recent times is that I think in this world there are what I call Christian non-Christians. And what I mean by that is that these are people who believe the right things, they check the right boxes, they go to church, they, they believe in Christ. But they don't live in Christ, particularly in the way they treat people. On the other hand, there are people who I would call non-Christian Christians. That is to say, people who would actually be offended if you suggested that they were Christians, but they basically live in how they treat people with mercy, compassion, justice, and understanding. And, and, and what we need to understand is that what we are called to be are Christian Christians, people who, who believe in Christ and live like Christ. There's a lot of criticism about the church and a lot of it we've earned, um, but the funny thing that I've noticed, and we'll unpack this a little bit in the message, is that much of the criticism about Christianity in terms of how Christians at times have treated people, questions of justice, questions of poverty, questions of all these kinds of things are actually issues that came to the forefront, became part of our ethic from Christianity. So to criticize Christianity based on the arguments from Christianity is a little like shooting a hole in the bottom of the boat you're floating in. And so, so there's a desperate need to rediscover the original message of Christ in terms of how we love each other. This is the Sunday in Advent. We celebrate love. We, we um, remember the Advent wreath, and some of you grew up in churches where they lit Advent wreaths, and this is the, the love weekend where we come back and we talk about this most important characteristic, in fact, the central defining characteristic about whether or not you truly are in Christ is actually how you love and what it means to love. And, and we, we just don't understand how radical the message of Christ was when it came into the world. So, so just imagine with me, um, you are a, a Christian in a first century. So you are a Roman, and you are a Roman Christian who has uh, been a centurion. And, and what that means is, is that before you became a Christian, what it meant was you went to other lands and you conquered. And you conquered because the Roman gods were sending you to conquer. And you were supposed to conquer. And Rome was meant to rule with might and power. They were going to bring order and culture. They were going to civilize the barbarians. And you went out and you did a bunch of that. And you conquered and you got a lot of wealth. You, you conquered a lot of people who now became slaves. So you came back and you had a bunch of slaves. And you bought a villa. And you and your family live in this village full of slaves, growing grapes, doing the thing, and you would have been considered a righteous Roman. And your understanding would have been that God has put me in a power, in a place of power to rule and to bring order. And I meant to use my power over these people to be in control. And what that meant, if you were a typical Roman, and not only would this have been allowed, it actually would have been encouraged and said it was a good thing, you could impose yourself on anyone in the villa. So that night, you could go to your wife, and she would have to do whatever you wanted her to do. That way, it might mean that for one other night, you go down into your villa, and there are slaves, men and women, boys and girls, and you could impose yourself on them because you had the might, the power of Rome. And if what we have in terms of the artwork in the Roman bathhouses is any indication, that's exactly what men did. It was about power. It was about control. And as hard as this is for us to understand, children, adults, men, women, boy, girls, as hard as it is for us to understand this, this was actually encouraged as the right of a Roman man 
who ruled, who had conquered. And so imagine you are this Roman person and all of a sudden you've heard the message of Christ, you've embraced the message of Christ and you receive the letter of Colossians from the Apostle Paul. And, and here's the thing is that over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at some verses that are, uh, should I just say, controversial. We're going to look at some verses that, to be perfectly honest, there are many people who have read those verses and because those verses are in the Bible, they've decided not to become Christians. No one's ever explained those verses. Uh, these are verses that smart pastors avoid, okay? So you're praying for me, right? For wisdom and wisdom, <laughs> right? Okay, so these are verses that we're going to look at because I actually believe that when we properly understand them in terms of the context of when they were written, they could not be more important and powerful for the age we live in now. Because here's the problem. We are actually using the arguments born from Christianity to abandon Christ. And here's the problem is that you abandon Christ and you abandon Christ's ethics. What we're left with is human brokenness, human suffering, human selfishness, and it's just a matter of time till we go back to some old way of thinking. And so what we're really going to be talking about in coming home, talking all about relationships just in time for Christmas. Merry Christmas. God blesses everyone. Um, we're going to be talking about is this, is that the gospel reveals a radical new vision for all human relationships. And at the end of the day, we've been talking through this whole series about being in Christ, is that if your relationships are not defined by your Christianity, then you're not living in Christ. The fruit of everything we say we believe, everything we claim to have in our relationship with Christ, everything we define ourselves with as Christians, the fruit of all of that must be seen in how we treat each other and in a radical, incredible way. And you will only understand this if you understand the world it was spoken to. Several of the verses we're going to look at offend people today. Understand that they offended the original audience Okay, they offended the original audience long before, but for almost the exact opposite reason. Because Paul is going to challenge the power structures of that day. He's going to challenge the Roman perspective. Let me show you how it started with Jesus. Look at this verse. Incredibly important Jesus. So this is relationships in the Roman world. It is all about power and order. The Roman understanding would have been that the gods, the Greek gods and our Roman gods have given us power to rule. It's proper that we rule. Other people are meant to be ruled. They're meant to prop us up. And what we give them in return is order. We give them order and structure. They talked about the Roman peace. Roman peace was a violent peace. And they built roads and structures and cities. They claimed to be civilizing people. And they did it all using Roman power. Now, this is what Jesus said about this. It said, a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And so this is Jesus' original followers having what they would have just considered a normal conversation. Who's the greatest? Because we need to figure out who the greatest is because that's the one God's going to want to be in charge of us. This was a Roman perspective, but it's also a Jewish perspective. The Jewish perspective was that God made men and men weren't to rule over everybody else. This is them saying it, not me, but there was a, Roman, a Jewish prayer from one of the rabbis of the day, and this was the prayer. Thank God that I was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. And so they looked at Gentiles as other than us, women as subservient to us, and just the dog thing was just to put the other two in their place. And so the whole understanding was that you ruled. And so the whole idea was, let's figure out who the greatest is so we can put them in charge. And so this probably seemed like a reasonable conversation for the disciples to have. That's why they kept having it. 
But look at what Jesus said. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, that is to say the Romans, because these Jewish followers of Jesus would have hated the Romans. They would have been considered Gentiles so wrong. He said, those kings of the Gentiles that you look down on so much, exercise lordship over them. That is to say, they lord over people, they control, they tax you, they oppress you, they do a few little things for you, and then they say, see, we're your, your benefactors, you're welcome, we, we have brought Rome to you, okay? And of course, they hated that. And those in authority over them are called, look at that, benefactors. That is to say, we're your benefactors. We've come, we've conquered you, we've taken your rights, we've enslaved you, but we brought order, so you're welcome. It was the Roman view of power. It was that power was meant for the powerful to keep the powerful powerful, okay? And so what does Jesus say about that? But not so with you. So this is Jesus. Are we Christians? That we should pay attention to what Jesus said. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you be as the youngest. And so the Roman understand to be is that you were the youngest. That means you were a servant. You were a slave. You got the dirtiest jobs. You served others. You served those who were older and more powerful than you. And for Jesus to say you should be like the youngest would have been offensive. Not only would they have said, I just don't want to do that. The Romans and the Hebrews who would have heard that would have said, that is offensive to God. The gods have put us in this place. And for us to serve would be unseemly. It'd be unnecessary. It would be wrong. It'd be a perversion of the way things should be. You see, the early critics of Christianity, see, there's always been critics of Christianity. We have, they're called the pagan writers. The pagan writers who wrote against Christianity for the first several years, they, they said things about Christianity like, you understand, these Christians, they are, they are subverting our children. They are destroying our families. They are undermining our culture. They're not patriotic. They're impious. You know that the original Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods? Okay? And so the accusing was that their ideas are so subversive to our culture and they're so challenging to what we believe, it's got to be stopped. And you know what? They were right is that the ideas of Christianity that started here conquered the Roman world, and they have been permeating Western culture for 2,000 years. That is why there are people who would never name the name of Christ who are still living by many of the standards of Christ, non-Christian Christians. They like the ethic, but they've cut themselves off from the source, which is very dangerous. Say more about that in a minute. So again, he says, so that you should be like the youngest, and the leader, the leader, the one with authority and power, the one who serves. Again, the Romans and the Jews would have said that's nonsense. It doesn't work that way. It's impractical and it's actually obscene. They would have been offended by it. And it's hard for us to understand how big honor and power was ingrained into the culture, how radical this message was. For who is greater? So Jesus asked the question. Let me ask the question. Who is greater? The one who goes out to dinner and reclines at the table or the one who is the slave who serves or the waitress? A modern, a modern example. Jesus said, is it not the one who reclines, who has used all their power and all their authority to create luxury and blessing and just everything for themselves? He says, is it not the one who reclines? But then why am I among you as one who serves? So Jesus uses himself as the example of a new ethic. And, and so, so what we need to understand is that this is a radical change that is built on, on a belief about God. So, so 
we've been in Colossians. And everything we have been doing in Colossians has led to this point where we start asking deep questions about how we live and how we serve each other. So all the theology that we've been doing in Colossians is the foundation of it. Let me just review some of this and understand that if we believe these things, it must articulate, it must translate, it must express itself in how we love and serve one another, how we look at society and structures and relationships and all of this. And, and, and if all we do is say, yep, I agree with all that, Paul, but it doesn't get there, we are a Christian non-Christian. We are a person who professes to be in Christ, but in any practical way does not live in Christ. It is all about how we treat each other. So a couple things, big picture theology things. I've said several of these. Some of you are gonna roll your eyes and say, you're saying it again. I'll quit saying it when you start doing it. Deal? That was a little harsh. All right, so I'm going to stop that. So here's the deal. All right, God exists in community that is good and beautiful, that we believe in a transcendent God. He is big. He is out there. What is good, he is good. And so if it's like him, it's good. What is beautiful, he is beautiful. So if it's like him, it's beautiful. And he lives in community. God has always been in community. This thing called the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have lived in this love relationship. And so he created and expanded his creation so that he could include us in this love relationship. That's God. This God is a created God, and we are created in God's image. That you are created to be like God, to know God, to have a relationship with like him. That says amazing things about your significance and your worth and your value and your purpose, that you were created for some way to express the image of God through art, through music, through business, through all kinds of ways. It also says something you should believe about every other person you meet, that they are worthy of dignity and respect in spite of color or gender or any other issue that you might want to add, that every person is worthy of dignity and respect should be an object of your love in Christ. We are created in God's image. This belief changed and is changing the world. It starts and ends with Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of the image of God within humanity. And so how do we know what the ultimate expression of what it means to be a human being is? We look at Jesus, and what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to be the ultimate example of what it means to be a person who is in charge and how to be in charge with authority, because Jesus always had authority. He said to his disciples on the night before he died, all authority in heaven and earth has been given with me. And what is Jesus going to do with that? Is he going to punish? Is he going to rot? Is he going to destroy? Is he going to rule? Is he going to prop himself up? No, he's going to serve. He's going to sacrifice. He also is the example of someone who learns to submit to authority. He says to his father, I don't want to do this, not my will, but what you want, that's what I want. That is him and his humanity showing us what real power looks like. This is Jesus, our ultimate example. Look at this. Jesus taught us to demonstrate and demonstrated meekness. So this is a word that we definitely need to rediscover because we're confused about meekness. I'm going to unpack this in the scripture in just a minute, but meekness is not the same as weakness, okay? Meekness, meek people are the most powerful people in the world. They are the most amazing people in the world. They're the strongest, most intelligent. I'm going to say more about that, but Jesus demonstrated this. Jesus is often described as meek. He describes himself as meek, but he is never described as weak. Okay, major difference there, and I'll show you that from the scriptures in a minute. The kingdom authority and leadership is grounded in service and sacrifice. I cannot tell you how offensive this would have been to the Jewish community, how offensive this would have been to the Roman community, that their understanding would have been, listen, we'll, we'll, we'll give lip service to things like honor and justice, but at the end of the day, we are meant to rule. 
And, and we are meant to be in charge in our families, in our governance, in everything. And everything is for us and ultimately comes back to us. Jesus turned that on its ear, if in no other way than in the incarnation at Christmas. Incarnation means that God was in heaven. He became man in the person of Jesus. He was everything, had everything, was born into nothing, into poverty, into an oppressed group of people at the worst point in their human, in their history. Jesus demonstrated what it means to serve and to sacrifice. We're gonna see that again from the scriptures. Watch this. Then the kingdom, look at this, is all tribes' tongues. This is radical inclusion. And again, we just so get this because we've been swimming in it for 2,000 years as part of Western culture. But this is a radical message because up to this time in the Roman world, they would have had the understanding that, okay, we've got our Roman gods and there's a lot of them and this town has this God and this town had this God and this God town had this God. And if you want this, you talk to this God and this God and this God, all these kinds of understandings. Oh, and we went and conquered the Greeks, but they had different gods, but they're similar gods. Oh, then we conquered the Assyrian way different gods. Then we went to the Egyptians. They have their own gods. Apparently gods are regional, okay? And, and our gods are more powerful. Why? Well, because we're in charge and we won. Ha ha. Our gods beat your gods. My God is bigger than your God. We're going to beat up. You know, those kind of ideas. This was their understanding. Well, then from the Old Testament, Christianity came on the scene with this crazy idea that our God is the God of all the earth. And that was an incredible idea. And that means that Anyone from any tribe, any nation can be included in God's family. And, and the Old Testament uh, talked about this and, and the Jews did not understand this. They thought that God was God of all the earth, but he only liked them. And when Christianity came and said, you don't understand, God's extending his family. And I'll show you this again from the scriptures. This is the radical inclusion that whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. It's a powerful image. And then the last one, mutual submission is assumed in relationships. So this word submission, again, is a word that's going to need to be rediscovered because, again, we think of it as a word of weakness. A couple of things about submission. The Bible tells us in all kinds of different ways to submit. We're supposed to submit to government, supposed to submit to leaders, but we're supposed to learn to submit to each other mutually. That is to say, and I truly believe this, that relationships are only possible if you submit to me and I submit to you. That is to say that the healthiest relationships are not the relationships that I go in and I say, how can I get control here? How can I get my way? How can you get what I want? How can I express what's important to me? Okay, and do I outsmart you? Do I power up? Do I use my authority? Do I threaten you? What do I do to get what I want? What Christians come back and say, you know what, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna submit what I want. I'm gonna submit what's important to me and I'm gonna be curious about you. You say, I wonder what you want. I wonder what's important to you. I wonder what you need. And I'm going to make my focus what you need, what you're all about. And I'm going to submit. The word submit literally means in the Greek to rank under. It's a military term. I'm going to put myself below you to lift you up. And so we're going to see the scripture teaches mutual relationships in scripture. So let's take a look at the scriptures now. Okay, we're back in Colossians. And remember, this is the verse we've looked at, but I just want to remind you because I cannot tell you how stunningly offensive this verse would have been. If you're that Roman general who has conquered, you own the villain, our Roman officer, centurion, you, you have conquered, you have slaves, you are lord of the villa, and you get this, this, and you believe this, it has to change everything. And so, so here's it. It says, here there is no Greek or Jew. And so the Jews go, wait a minute. 
God has made us a special people. You're telling us now that, that God is going to include these Gentiles in the family of God? Well, well, they have to do a lot of changing, right? They have to become Jewish and follow our rules and get circumcised and all this kind of stuff. And Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. Wait, they have to follow certain rules before we have to love them, right? Or include them. No, we're going to throw all that out. Okay, we're going to throw all that out. Barbarian or Scythian? And the Roman said, listen, Barbarians and Scythians are those really weird guys from the north who dress in furs and, and worship trees and just crazy, crazy stuff. There's no way that, that you're going to expect me to include them in the family of God because that means I would have to consider them brothers and sisters. Or that's crazy. There's no, look at this, slave are free. And so the Lord of the villa thinks to himself, he's included slaves in this. That means those slaves that I've been victimizing are my brothers and my sisters. Those children that I make work, I I'm, 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 should be protecting. I should be serving the youngest instead of making them serve. You see, within this, listen, are all the greatest and best ideals of our society. And again, there are so many people who want to use those ideals that were born in Christ to attack Christ. This is what I mean when I say they're shooting a hole in the boat they're floating in. This is what I mean that we're undermining ourselves when we want to say, I just want the fruit of being in Christ without Christ. It just doesn't work that way. That's why our society is so conflicted. That's why we're being torn apart. He goes on and says, but, but he says, there's no slavery free, but Christ, look at this, is all. So Christ is above all. If we're in Christ, he is everything. He gets to define the rules, okay? And in all. Wait, he's in all these kinds of people? Whosoever will can actually come. He, he reinstates this even stronger in the book of um, um, uh, uh, Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, again, see in Christ? Okay, we're in Christ. Same thought, different book. Jesus, you are, uh, Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. So anyone who puts their faith in Christ, we are family of God no matter what. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither, again, Jew nor Greek. There is not slave nor free. There is not male nor female. Even male and female. He says those distinctions are blown away. We're all equal together in Christ. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings and heirs according to the promise. And again, the Jews would have just freaked out at the end to say, no way. The Jews are Abraham's offspring. You're including everybody in that? That's the radical message of Christianity. That's why the early church was full of women and slaves and the poor and the marginalized. That's why the Roman, early Roman critics said they are just a bunch of riffraff. They are a bunch of losers whose society is thrown away. That, that's why Paul says, listen, not many of you were well-born or noble. Not many of you were of high regard says, but in Christ, you've been given the highest position. And this is God's perspective. And again, so much of this is just kind of what we assume now, because again, we've been swimming in this for 2,000 years, but the radical departure is so important. And the reason it's important for us to understand the radical departure is that if society departed from this horrible ethic to Christ's ethic, and that what happens if we depart from it again? Okay, where are we going to end up if we abandon Christ and his way of loving people, okay? He goes on and he talks about the centrality of submission. This is one verse of several verses. He teaches us submit one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, this is a calling back to understand that relationships really only work in a Christian context when I put you first and you put me first. 
When there's this understanding that I care about what you think about, what you say, and what's important to you, if I'm always trying to win, if I'm always in an adversarial mode, if I'm always trying to control and dominate, okay, and particularly if I have power or authority, well, then it just can't be Christian. It's going to be something else. It's going to be oppressive. It's going to be degrading to the human spirit. We're going to unpack this deeply again in the coming weeks, next week especially. Meekness versus weakness. Again, notice Paul in Colossians, okay? He's laid down all the theological foundations, and then he gives us this way of teaching each, uh, treating each other. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And notice that all these words are about how we treat each other. So this is the fruit, this is the outcome, this is what it means to be in Christ. And so if this is not who you want to be, who you're working for, if there's no evidence of this in your life, how can you claim to be in Christ? You are a Christian, non-Christian. And, and you have to look deeply at how you treat people. It's not what you believe, it's about how you treat people. So look what he says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. Now, this word meekness is where I want to just park for a minute because it's so central to healthy relationships. So what's the difference between weakness and meekness? Because a lot of people hear meekness and they think, well, that's just a weak person. That's just an insecure person that doesn't have any power. And they're just, oh, I'm sorry, I'll just do whatever. And it's okay. And whatever's fine. That's great. That's what they think meekness is. Or it's false humility. Uh, you know, I'm terrible. I'm horrible. I'm a terrible person. Listen, meekness is not that at all. That's weakness. Now, we're not called to be weak. We're told that we are weak without God. And it says, in our weakness, we become strong. What are we supposed to do once we become strong? We're supposed to become meek. So what is meek? Meek is a person who knows who they are. It actually takes much more strength to be meek than it does to be powerful and oppressive. Okay? The most weak person is a person who gathers up all his power and strength and uses it to hurt people, oppress people, gain control, build themselves up. A meek person is a person who says, I do know I have some power. I have some authority. I may have some wealth. I have some ability. This is a person who can look you in the eye and they can have all that power that they could use to oppress you, to confront you, to compete with you, but instead they use it to serve you. They use it to sacrifice for you. They choose to say, I'm going to rank myself under and use what I have to serve others for the common good. I am a person who understands that the greatest person I can be is a person who's like Christ, who defined himself not as one who sits at the table, but as one who serves. I'm going to be defined as a person who works for the benefit of other people. I could do other things. I have power that I could use for myself, but why would I want to do that? That would make me a small, empty person. What if I use what I have to serve other people. That is a meek person, and that's what Christianity calls us to. That is greatness. That is leadership. When we are leaders like that, then people find it so much easier to follow us. You know, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. And we think, well, that's a great sentimental thought. Humble, weak people are going to win at the end. Jesus is going to come back and put them in good places. I'm happy for them, okay? That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying when a person is truly weak, meek, when a person is weak, they can't even take care of themselves. Or, or they'll use their power to hurt people. That's a weak person. When a person is truly meek, they become the kind of person that people realize they could do other things and they're doing good things. They're serving people. They're using what they have for common good. I'm going to follow them. I'm going to put them in charge. I'm going to help them be the people who have influence because people learn to trust them. They feel safe with them. When we have more meek people, people who use what they have for the common good, 
those are the folks who inherit the earth. And so meekness versus weakness. So, so let me show you a couple examples of how this plays out. Christmas, right? The first one is Mary. Have you ever recognized what a remarkable woman Mary is? I mean, she is a, she's a rock star. I mean, so, so who is Mary? She's a young girl. Some people think as early as 13 to 15 years old. Young girl who is part of a Jewish family, no power, totally at the mercy of, of, of some male in some way. She is under Roman occupation. And so even her people are an oppressed people. This is a person who doesn't seem to have any influence, any power at all. And so she's just hanging out, and all of a sudden, an angel shows up and says, blessed are you among women. You are so fortunate for, for this was going to happen. Even though you're a virgin, the Spirit of God's going to come to you, and the Almighty's going to uh, foreshadow you, and, and, and you're going to have this baby, and this baby's going to be the Messiah. He's going to save his people from his sins, and, and you've been called to do this. And her initial question was, whoa, 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 what now? I'm a virgin. How can this be? Lots of questions. And the angel says, this is from Almighty. This is from God. This is what you're called to do. And what is her response? And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as your word. And so Mary submits. She obeys. She says, This is something I'm going to do. I'm going to understand that this child is going to be given and trusted me somehow or another. And I'm going to raise this child to serve humanity for the common good. That's a pretty good model for parenting, by the way. And so Mary, in fact, if you get a chance, go to, go to um, um, Luke chapter 2, and Mary actually has a long prayer there. It's called the Magnificat. And if you read it, you, you, you think to yourself, strange prayer. I mean, if you really think about this, you'd expect more about baby Jesus and God Almighty and all those kinds of things. The prayer is full of things like hope for the poor, justice for the oppressed, those who are beat up, those who are forgotten. And, and why? Well, because that was Mary's story. That's where she was coming from. That's what's her experience. And she saw the birth of the Messiah as an advent of justice, as an advent of freedom from oppression, that one who's going to come and change everything in the most profound ways. And, and when you understand Mary's heart, all of a sudden that in her situation, you understand that she saw in Jesus the hope for the nations, the hope for the whole world. Her prayer is glorious, and it's a picture of, of being willing to sacrifice in myself. And boy, women having children, you want to talk about sacrifice? Holy cow. I mean, this is just, this is just Mary doing that and saying, I'm doing this because God has called me to do it, and it's going to lead to salvation for, for, for the nations. And, and she said, I am blessed because I'm called to this wonderful thing. Now let's look at another example. We got this guy by the name of Joseph. So Joseph is engaged to marry. That was a very serious thing. It was a contract between families. Only way you could break an engagement was through a, a divorce. It was a legal thing. And so he's going to get married to Joseph, Mary. And so she comes to Joseph and says, hey, Joseph, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Hey, yeah, good. They should talk to you about this thing. So funny thing, an angel came to me yesterday. <laughs> hey, right? Weird, right? So anyway, uh, he said, this is what the angel said, that I'm actually going to have a baby, I'm a virgin. I know, I know, that's what the angel said, and, and I'm just going to be the Messiah, and why, what, what now? And Joseph, just, I don't know how he responded. Maybe he was like, you know, if you would have just not lied to me, or treated me like an ignorant fool, disrespected me this way, what the heck? Was it a Roman soldier who maybe forced you, or some weird family member, or some kind, what happened? Just tell me the truth. Okay, you know what? Forget it. And so what Joseph did, look what it says about her. And her husband, Joseph, he's called a husband because engagement counted as like a marriage step one, okay? Um, not her husband yet, but engaged, so say fiance in our modern understanding. And her husband, fiance, Joseph, look at this, being a just man. Boy, I tell you what, we as a culture need to start raising some just men. 
some good men. We currently are a culture not doing a very good job raising good men. We're just not. In fact, we're kind of making it really difficult. Okay, but Joseph is a just man. He wants to do what's right by God and by Mary. His heart is broken. He's a just man. Look at this. Unwilling to put her to shame because what he could have done is he could have said, you know what, we're going to go public with this, Mary. Okay, Facebook right now. You're going to publish it, right? They didn't have Facebook. But the thing is, he could have just called the whole village together. And they're from Nazareth. Nazareth, some people think Nazareth had less than 200 people in it. So it's like, think, you know, like Bloomer or something smaller. Not Bloomer's huge compared to Nazareth. Uh, something small, uh, New Auburn. All right, so whatever it is, all right? That's how you th- think about this story. This was a backwater, middle of nowhere. These were nobodies, okay? And so here's Joseph, a good man, wanting to do the right thing. He just said, Mary did this. This is wrong. Shame on her. Shame on her family. I have my rights. No one treats me like that. The little power I have, I'm going to use to crush her, get revenge. This is how I'm going to handle myself. This is how I'm going to get it done. Okay? Oh, by the way, that Old Testament law says that anyone who does this, we should stone her. And maybe we should do that. Maybe we should just call a bunch of rocks and just kill her. You know, that, that'll show her. But it says, Joseph being a just man, not willing to put her to that kind of shame. Look at this. Resolved to divorce her quietly. So, you know, even before the angel comes, we see a good man, a strong man, a courageous man. And, and boy, we need more of those. We're going to talk about that next week. Okay, so here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um, the angel comes to Joseph, right? And says, Joseph, turns out, you know what? She was telling you the truth. And he had the dream. He says, going to be the savior of the world. Jesus, get up, do your job. Take responsibility for yourself, Joseph, and for Mary and, Mary and the baby. That, that's a call to a man. And so this man came, and he did, and he married her. And, and think about what that would have cost him. He would have had to lay down his wrong, right? And, and look what it said. Look at this. Um, when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, uh, took her as his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth. You want to talk about sacrifice and humility, young man? Think about that, you guys who have been young men and are young men. Um, um, knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So he did what he's supposed to do. He took responsibility for himself and bore responsibility for others. And Mary and Joseph came together, became a family, a good man and a good woman who were strong together, and they raised the blessing that would be the world. That's a template for family. This is a picture, a picture of, 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 of what, what, what Christianity is all about. So what's the ultimate example? Well, Christmas example is Jesus, right? So, so look at this incredible verse. Maybe the most important Christmas passage in the entire Bible. Have this mind among yourself. So this is your perspective. This is the way you think. This is your attitude. This mindset is the foundation of all modern ethics, all modern Western understanding of caring for the poor, caring for the sick, starting hospitals, starting universities, access to government for all people, clean water, taking care of the environment. All of that comes from the ethic of Jesus. And again, to use that to reject Jesus Shooting a hole in the boat you're floating in. This mind is among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in form God, so he had power, authority. He is El Shaddai, Old Testament, God Almighty, okay? Smoke on the mountain, God, okay? Did not count his equality, his rights. He is the only one who had the right to rule. Any other person who claims the right to rule is an interloper, is is an illegitimate leader. Okay, he was the one who had the right to rule, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to gone over. We desperately need people who will get over their rights and get much more concerned about their opportunity to serve. 
okay? So, so grasped, but emptied himself, emptied himself, submitted himself. By the way, Jesus, several times it talks about how Jesus submitted to God the Father. Jesus submitted to the cross. So, so if you think meekness and submission are weak, you think Jesus is weak. Just think about that. If he's the ultimate image of God, the good and the beautiful, then he's our example in this. So watch this. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, okay, being born in the likeness of human beings. Look at this. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Notice he is not humbled. Jesus was never humbled. He was never made weak. He was never powerless. He humbled himself by becoming, look at this, obedient, submissive, even to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so the understanding that Jesus is exalted, the ultimate example of what it means to be a human because he came in power and demonstrated humility and meekness and service and sacrifice. He submitted his rights, not as something to be grasped, but something he submitted to death, even to death on the cross. I wish I had an hour to talk to you about what the cross was for the Romans and what it has become now. What it was in terms of a picture of oppression and death and power and shame. It struck terror in the, in the hearts of oppressed people because this was Rome saying, we can do anything we want to you. And for Jesus to take that and make it into a symbol of love and salvation and hope, see, Jesus changed everything. He changed the way we're supposed to treat each other. And if we are people who claim to believe this, the theology, and it doesn't translate it to, to be known as people, you know, people might say they believe some crazy things. They, but boy, they love people. They care about the poor. They care about the oppressed. They care about the disenfranchised. Boy, they're fair. They're just. You know what? They could use what they have selfishly on themselves, but they, they really, they, they take care of each other and they take care of others. I mean, this is the thing the world desperately needs to see. A, a radical transformation that has come because we are in Christ. And so, so I want to challenge you with a couple next steps. So, so these are two next steps. Let me show you. One is just, again, getting ready for this next year. After the first year, we're going to be starting. Everything next year is going to be about how to do relationships. It's going to be understanding how we learned relationships, where we learned them, what part of what we do relationally is inconsistent with Christ, and just different pathways. We're going to do some stuff on conflict. We're going, to, we're going to do a peacemaker seminar. We're just going to do a ton of stuff on how to love each other and how to, how to be people who do relationships really well. So just start preparing for that. Start saying, yeah, in my heart, we're going to do this. Small group, we're going to do this. Just get ready for that. And the second thing I just want to challenge you to do is think about Christmas different. That you're going to be with friends and family. Particularly ask yourself, do I treat people the way we've discussed here like Jesus or like a Roman? Am I more about my relationships? Is it adversarial? Is it me trying to get control? Is it me powering? Do I insist on being heard, insist on being seen? Do I make it about me? Or do I submit myself in such a way that I truly become curious about the people I'm at and uh, I'm with? And, and where, where are they coming from? And what's important to them? And what do they need? What you're going to find is that when you act like a Roman, it's very unsatisfying. It's, it's exhausting and it's lonely. But when you become a person who becomes interested in other people and, and helps build other people up, boy, life becomes meaningful and hopeful and helpful. It's just much, much better. So this Christmas, think about what would change, not in them if they did that, but in you if you did that. Look, let's pray together. Father God, oh man, 
So much work needs to happen in me. So much work needs to happen in us. We want to truly be in Christ, where these things we claim we believe are deeply felt and deeply believed and cherished in such a way that they change the way we think, that we would have the mind of Christ. And that would lead to us changing in how we act with people and how we respond and how we love. You know, Father God, may we truly be known as people of love. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. That that is it. God, show us what that means. Show us how to love one another. Help us to value it. Thank you, Jesus, that you've changed everything. Let us live up to our highest beliefs, our highest ideals, and more and more, Father God, let us be people just known by love. In Jesus' name, amen.